passage is coming from Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal, and profane the name of my God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Sam, if we haven't met. Uh, if you're visiting, special welcome. Especially if you're visiting for Reese's Baptism, which is coming out later. That's exciting. Um, so, yeah, I'm Sam, I'm one of the pastors here. We're in a bit of a weird series for us. We usually just got a book of the Bible and work our way through it, but we're doing more of a, a topical series, taking in just all that the Bible might say about a particular topic. I'll say more about that in a second. It's also going to be a bit of a strange sermon. That is, my, my, it's, it, it's different. So, um, usually I like, you know, my sweet spot is just a couple verses and just like stare at it for a little bit. This is we're going to sweep through the Bible. So I just, I am hoping it's helpful. So just know my heart is that it's helpful. Okay. <laughs> it's a bad disclaimer to say at the end, isn't it? Okay, let me pray. We should pray. Father, we do pray for your help now, just knowing that we ought not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways trust in you. And so um, direct our path even now as we think about this such an important topic, um, that it would land in our hearts, deep in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is week two in our series on, on biblical stewardship. That is, what should we do with the things that God gives us? And our focus is more narrow than just all the things that God gives us. Uh, but it's more, it's, it's more known. So theologians will talk about two different kinds of grace that God gives the world, special grace and common grace. So special grace is that grace which is given to just God's people. So think about things like the gift of His Holy Spirit living inside of that just That's just for Christians, or even spiritual gifts. Uh, things like justification, sanctification, adoption into His family. These are special graces given to just the people of God, but there's also common grace, and that is those gifts that God gives to everyone, that Christian or not Christian, righteous or unrighteous, very moral to incredibly immoral, everyone gets this kind of grace. Uh, we live on the Gold Coast, we have lots of common grace, and I don't know if you, no, I don't, you know, I don't want to be the one to break it to you, but this is true, that not everyone on the Gold Coast are Christians, right? And so we all, though, got to get to experience the beach, the sun came up this morning, and it wasn't just for the Christians. When the rain falls, it falls on us all. Anyone can go to Dreamworld and hop on the steel typepad, right, and, and go on a roller coaster, right? These, everyone can go in the cafes, everyone can enjoy amazing food and coffee and the restaurants. That's, that's for everyone. And the question of this series is, though, how should the Christian steward those things? Assuming that the Christian would do it uniquely. So this morning, we're talking about money and possessions. We will for the next few weeks. And one of the key keys, to, I think, in beginning to answer how will the Christian steward those things is actually in the word steward. 
that we see ourselves not as owners, but stewards, managers of God's things. We steward things on behalf of the owner. And so the Christian begins there, God owns everything. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, in the, word, in the world and those who dwell therein. Job 41, 11, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, says God. Psalm 50, verse 10, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. As the story goes, it's, uh, a man rode up to John Wesley, the, uh, the preacher in the Great Awakening, and, and reported to him the, 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 the sad news that your house has burned down. And after a moment of taking stock and receiving that news, John Wesley said these words, No, the Lord's house burned to the ground. That's one less responsibility for me. <laughs> so everything belongs to the Lord. We are stewards of them. And we are stewards who will one day give an account to the owner for how we steward his things. Jesus begins the parable of the dishonest manager like this, Luke 16, 1. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him in and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Do you see? You have been wasting his possessions. That's over now. You give, you give an account for how you've managed, not his possessions, the owner's possessions. So how are you feeling about that? Is that already uncomfortable? Have you been wasting? Have we been wasting God's possessions? And God has not left us ignorant as to how he wants us to steward his money the Word of God is full to the brim with instructions on money and possessions. Jesus spoke about money and possessions more than He spoke about any other singular topic. More than He spoke about heaven, more than He spoke about hell, more than He spoke about prayer, more than He spoke about anything and everything. He spoke about money and possessions. And you wonder, why is that? Why is that? It, well, maybe, I, think, I can think of a few things. Maybe... It is one of the clearest windows into our hearts, the condition of our hearts. See, the condition of our heart is essentially invisible. We can't actually see what's going on inside of our hearts. But one way we can see it is our use of money and possessions. They make what's invisible kind of visible. We can make judgments. We can kind of see what's going on in our hearts. Paul Tripp um, says that money has this unique ability to fund everything that we actually care about. It, money has the unique ability to fund the things that are truly important to you. So you can go, what is the condition of my heart? Actually, my bank statement tells me something about that. My giving to others and generosity tells me something about the condition, the spiritual condition of my heart. Jesus declared, Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and money. Of course, you can serve God or money. 
But you cannot, Jesus says, serve both. You cannot serve God and money. How does that, I don't wonder how that lands. Wealthy, Gold Coast, Australia, we give an account. It's all His. Have we been wasting? You see also that money is able to deceive us about our spiritual condition. Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3.17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Money can lead us away from God. 1 Timothy 6, 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Remember the parable of the sower? And some of the seed falls on the, on the thorny ground and it ends up getting choked out. Well, it doesn't survive. Do you remember Jesus interprets that? What was those thorns that choked out that faith? Jesus says, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the world. We are in danger. Our discipleship, our following of Jesus is in danger. What from? The deceitfulness of riches and the desire for things, he says. Jesus meets a rich young ruler in Luke 18 who follows God's law very carefully. But Jesus presses him on how well he follows God's law especially the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me, and says, you need to sell everything that you have and come follow me. And what does he do? No, he, he, he walks away. He walks away sad. Why? Well, it says, for he was extremely rich. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, I think, some shocking words. It must have been for their ears. Jesus says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But of course, what's impossible for man is possible for God. So the next chapter, we meet another very wealthy man, a tax collector named Zacchaeus, and he is saved by Jesus, and he shows he is saved by Jesus. How? What's well, when he says these words, I will give half of my wealth to the poor. Lord, if I have cheated people of their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today for because this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. He showed himself that he had the kind of behavior that must be, he just must be a son of Abraham. He must be saved. Why? Immediately it affected his money and possessions. John the Baptist was preaching repentance in the wilderness and people were struck to the heart, I think, by his preaching and they asked him this question, what shall we do? How does he answer? He just starts talking about their money and possessions. Share your clothes and food. Tax collectors, don't rip people off. Soldiers, don't extort and be content with your wage. You see, I wonder if the spiritual condition of the church today was discerned by how do we steward our finances, what would we find? What would we find out about our spiritual condition if it was discerned by that? 
I'm sure the Lord would find different things. I'm sure He would find great faithfulness. I'm also sure He would find great worldliness. The prosperity gospel preached today across Australia, America, and even in the poorest of the poor nations, offering to the world, Jesus can get you money. You can have Jesus, but He's a means to what you really want, which is health and reaching your potential and succeeding in everything. But it's greed, it's worldliness in the guise of religion. It's not a gospel. But it is spread across the world. It's in some of the biggest, biggest churches. And it's very influential and it can come into our hearts. So as we were thinking about this series, um, and we were beginning to think, oh, we're going to spend a few weeks on money and possessions. We thought one, of the, one, of the, one good thing we could do, and this is this sermon, hopefully, is, um, is kind of lay out a biblical theology of wealth and possessions so that we could kind of position ourselves in the story of Scripture because one of the main things that the, 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 the prosperity false teacher does is rip verses out of context and take it our way out and go, that's for you. And it may not be, actually. And so if we could get a sense of the way that the Bible flows and the way that money and possessions is treated throughout the Bible, then we'll be in a good place to find ourselves, okay, where are we and what are the implications then for us, where we find ourselves in the biblical narrative and how that impacts our money and possessions. So we're going to do that. Um, don't flip around. There's going to be lots of verses. So I just, that's, you know, stick with it. Um, I'll do my best. And... And I just, you know, as we do, try to think through the themes that we're seeing, okay? Pick up what common threads that we see in the heart of God. Okay, let's go. How does it begin? Well, it begins in the beginning, right? And God created the heavens and the, world, and, and, and the earth. And there's a garden. And God puts uh, people in that garden. It is a land that is wonderful. They are there to enjoy it. They are there to work in it, to keep it. To it will produce for them like it's a material world and it is there for the enjoyment of the people, right? The physical world, material things are not evil in themselves. God made a good material world for them to enjoy. But because of their sin, they are removed from that garden and the world, the material world is cursed. Genesis 3.17, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. But that's for everyone. That's just not for God's people. That's just not for you know, unbelievers. That's for everyone. Everyone's going to live now in a fallen world. It's a beautiful world. It is able to produce, but it's a hard world. And that makes sense of what we see around us, doesn't it? There is, there is potential for great prosperity in this world, but there is also potential for great poverty. Skip ahead to Genesis 12, where God establishes then for himself his own special people. God calls Abraham and gives him promises of future blessings. He will be a great nation. He will have many descendants. He will have a land for them to live in. Although notice that Abraham never actually fully receives all these wonderful 
bountiful promises. Abraham himself is a nomad. He's often called, um, in Genesis, a sojourner. At one point, he has to leave his place because of famine and go to Egypt. Obviously, Egypt was doing better. So they're not the people of God. They were doing well. Hebrews, th- Hebrews 11.13 says this about Abraham and Sarah and others. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's what they were. They were strangers. They were exiles on the earth. But that changes. Skip ahead. That changes. That all changes. When, when Moses leads the people out of slavery in Egypt and they're headed to where? The promised land. God's people will be in a special place once again. And on the way there, they stop at a mount, a Mount Sinai, and God explains to them in detail how they are to live in that land. It actually looks a a lot like the situation that Adam and Eve found themselves in the garden. Hey, do well and you will prosper. Things will go well in this garden. Sin, turn away from me, you will be removed. Same thing for the people of Israel in the promised land. Do well and you will prosper. Sin, turn away from me and you will will suffer and you will be removed from the land. I want to read some of it. uh, This is spelled out in Leviticus 26. Also, Deuteronomy 28, but here's Leviticus 26, beginning at verse 3. Okay, these are the, the blessings that are promised to Israel if they do well, if they would be faithful in the land. God says this, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give, I'll give you your rains in their season. And the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land and you shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword and on and on it goes. It sounds pretty good. Right? Obey all this. That's on offer for you, Israel. But then there are warnings for disobedience, beginning at verse 14. God says, But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit and on and on that goes now to be clear this is for israel in the promised land this is not hey israel do these things and you will be saved your sins will be forgiven no, no, no one ever got saved through works. It was always by faith. But this regards prosperity and peace in the land. 
do well, and in that land you will go well. But there's also warnings. So you can see how this can get misused. Hey, if you pluck a verse from the Old Testament that's, that's for, for Israel in the promised land and go, those promises are for me, you go, well, the obvious thing is, you're not Israel in the promised land. But what are we? Well, we'll get to that soon. So, um, now, as, so as God gives them the, the laws, I just want to look at that for a moment. So God gives laws for how they are to live in the land, and a lot of the laws have a lot to do with how they use their money and possessions. A lot of them. I'm here, so I'm going to go through a bunch of them. Um, these are not, what I'm saying, is directly laws for us right now, but there are important principles that you can see. And I think you can see the character of God in lots of this. So let's see. What, how did God govern their, their use of money and possessions in the land? Well, there were laws about pov- uh, poverty. Property. There are laws about poverty. Anyway, poverty. I just mixed them both together. Property. All families and clans were given land. According to the size of their family and clan, they were all given a plot of land. That's revolutionary. At the, at the time when only actually a few owned land and everyone else served those in, in poverty, no, God says everyone gets a plot of land. Laws about lending money. They were forbidden to lend money to one another with interest. Exodus 22 verse 25, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. There were laws around Sabbaths or sub- Sabbatical years and the year of Jubilee. So the Sabbath meant once a week, you pause from work. You do not work. Automatically, that, what does that do? That limits your wealth, doesn't it? You're only producing six of the seven days. You must trust God for the seventh. Sabbatical year, once every seven years, again, workers and fields would rest and the poor were able to come through and glean what was remaining in those resting fields. Again, this puts Israel at a competitive disadvantage with the rest of the, the nations. It's like every seven years, we just rest. Well, of course, they have to trust God. The year of Jubilee was every 49 years. Now, that's, there's actually no evidence that Israel ever actually did the year of Jubilee, but it was, it's, it's described, I think, in Leviticus 25. And it's a once-in-a-life opportunity to kind of start fresh. Everyone, go back to your own properties, go back to your lands, and it kind of puts a halt to intergenerational poverty, just cyclic, going on and on and on. It's a fresh start. There were laws about tithes and offerings. They were commanded to give to the Lord from their first fruits. The first portion of their harvest would always go to the Lord. What does that teach them? Well, it teaches that all of their stuff is actually God's. He owns all of it. But you, so you should give the first bit to God. And if you're going to give the first, you should actually, because of who God is, you should give Him the best. Then there's the tithe, Leviticus 27, verse 30. Every tithe in the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So the tithe was just giving 10% of all these things. People today talk about tithing like it's just giving. It's like, I tithe 5%. That's literally impossible. It's like saying, I 10% 5%. And it's like, you can't actually do that. You know, I 10% 15%. No, you don't. You're not tithing. (laughs) Tithe literally means 10%. And that's what they gave. There were three kinds of tithe. One, one was every third year. And so scholars will say that overall, the person would give about 23% of their overall income. 
There are also occasions for free will offerings. There's amazing examples of, of this con- kind of contagious giving that people got caught up in. So the first was the building of the tabernacle. Let me read this. This is amazing. Exodus 36, verse 3. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task in the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people brings much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from, restrained from bringing. <laughs> that is tough problems, isn't it? That is like, I was going to say first world problems, but probably not. But I mean, what a, what a, what a struggle. Guys, enough with the giving. Restrain yourself. Same thing happened when they were building the temple. 1 Chronicles 29.2, David says, So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, and the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, and the iron for the things of iron, and on and on it goes. You get the picture. So then the leaders get amongst it, and they say, verse 6, Then the leaders of of, of a father's houses made their free will offerings, as did all the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. Verse 9, then the people rejoiced, because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David says, praise to the Lord in, in verse 14 in response to all this, but who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly, for all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Wow, what? <laughs> you know, it's hard to even process it. It's like, who are we that we should get to give all this to God? We're nothing. And yet we get to offer and offer and bring and bring. And it's all His anyway. Well, there were also some laws for the poor, gleaning laws were prominent. It meant that it, when you harvest your field, just don't do a great job of harvesting your field, okay? It's like, do it, but you only get one shot at it. Like, if you, if you, you know, you go through, there's leftovers, you're just going to have to leave that, and that's for the poor. They get to come through and grab that. For the poor, God accepted different sacrifices. If they couldn't afford a sheep, well, then a dove or a pigeon would do. Or if that was too much, they could bring fine flour. So there's some of the laws governing life in the promised land. That's the first section of the Old Testament. You move into the wisdom literature, and there's a fair bit to do with wealth and possessions. Um, The story of Job, there's a man who was very, very wealthy, but became very, very poor. And what did his friends say? His friends say, ah, you've done something wrong. That's what's happened. You're under God's curse. It's kind of understandable, but it's not true. It's nuanced, actually. He was a righteous man. And in the end, he, he is restored even better than before. Remember his famous line, though, it is the Lord who gives and it is the Lord who takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. In the Psalms, some songs celebrate how God rewards faithfulness, but some, some are laments about how the, the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer. 
In the book of Proverbs, there will be a, we'll do a whole sermon on this, so I'll just highlight one passage. It's the one that was read just earlier. Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Give me neither poverty nor riches, he says. Now, you see that throughout the Bible, that extremes of poverty and extremes of wealth are intolerable. That neither are okay in the Bible. And so he says, neither, please. Because of the spiritual danger that both kind of actually find, I would find myself at. If I was rich, I would just forget God. I'd be like so full and satisfied. I'd be like, where is God anyway? I'm rich. But if, I, if I'm poor, I mean, I'm going to be tempted to sin and profane the Lord. Rather, I'm just, if I could have enough, that would be enough. It's kind of like the, the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Give us this day our daily bread. That's what we're praying. Just give me enough. Imagine if the Lord actually answered that prayer, whether we would actually, oh, actually, I didn't mean to pray that. I want a little bit more than just daily bread. I want kind of daily abundance. The prophets at the end of the Old Testament, they're regularly rebuking Israel for their use of money and possessions. For example, they got rich off other people's, at other people's expense. Ezekiel twenty two twenty nine, The people of the land, Ezekiel says, have, have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have exhort, extorted the sojourner without justice. They use dishonest scales. Hosea 12, verse 7. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. They defrauded people of their wages. Malachi 3, verse 5. Against those who oppressed the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. They actually boasted and arrogantly in their wealth. Amos 6 verse 4, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs in the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Do you see? Oh, you boast, you're living in your beautiful luxury and your opulence and all of that, and you don't care about the spiritual poverty of the land. Boasting in your riches. They were obsessed with making more money. Amos 8.5, they say, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? That we may make the ephah small and the shekel great? And deal deceitfully with false balances. <laughs> it's like, oh my goodness, when will the Sabbath be over so we can get back to making money and ripping people off? When will this like church service be over so I can get back on my computer? I want to make some money. When will this like, spiritual stuff that doesn't actually gain me wealth be over? The leaders of Israel became greedy. Micah 3.11 its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. You see? They do it all and it's just greed. Well, give us some more money. Oh yeah, and the Lord will look after us. 
So what should they do instead? Well, things like Micah 6.8, do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 58 verse 7, share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. See, Israel failed so badly that they eventually were removed from the land. Babylon came and took them away and destroyed their homes and destroyed the temple. How are they to live then? Because that's a new situation, isn't it? We're no longer Israel in the land. What are we? We're Israel exiled. We're sojourners again. How will they live? Jeremiah tells them. Jeremiah 29.5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That was shocking. What? For the pagans who just came and destroyed the temple? Seek their welfare, pray for them. As they go well, I go, what? What? Should we not curse these people? No. No, they should be a blessing. They should sink roots into that city, knowing that this is not their forever place, that they actually will go home soon. Actually, not that 90 years. They'll actually get to go home. Okay, so we arrive in the New Testament. Where are we? How are we described? What would you say? Are we more like Israel in the Promised Land, or are we more like Abraham, a sojourner, or Israel in Babylon, exiles? Well, we're the latter, aren't we? We are not Israel in the Promised Land, but we are exiles, one Peter calls us. We are citizens of heaven. We live here. This is not our home. We actually know that one day we will be home, but we do live here, and we want to live here faithfully. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And in that day, look at Revelation, in that day, brothers and sisters, we will have prosperity. There will be no more tears. There will be no more suffering. There will be bountiful everything. We will be with the Lord. That will be the day. But that's not today. For now, Jesus says things like Luke 6, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are hungry now, blessed are you who weep now, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. See, I think most of our problems when it comes to our own misuse of money and possessions is because we think we're home. We don't want to like say that, but we live like we're home. We, th- we begin to think, this is my home. And we got it all wrong. We're like that guy on the train, you know, sometimes that illustration to use that guy on the train, just headed maybe from here to the city to get to work and just starts setting up things in a strange way that you wouldn't think because you're getting off the train soon, but he starts like changing the carpet, making a nicer chair, reupholstering the chair, you know, painting the walls a bit of a nice, nice artwork on the thing and you're like, are you ever getting off this thing? Oh yeah, I'm getting off soon. Okay, that makes no sense. Of your use of money and possessions, that makes no sense. And that's us. 
So I just want to focus on a few themes that we find in the New Testament, which result from, I think, living in light of eternity. That we are exiles, that we are pilgrims on the way, that we are sojourners today, and this is not our home. Okay, I've got three things, three themes. In, first, in light of eternity, the New Testament teaches that money and possessions are to be enjoyed, but not worshipped. So enjoy this world. Enjoy the things that God gives us. Enjoy them. They are good things. They're not evil in and of themselves. James 1 verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We are free to enjoy things, but not worship things. And actually, by not worshiping them, we actually get to enjoy them better. You begin to worship a thing that is not actually God, you'll destroy that thing. You will hate that thing. You'll be so frustrated that it never produces and never satisfies your soul. You'll be like, I'm done with you. But if you never expected that in the first place, you are freed, actually, aren't you? Just enjoy the thing for the thing that it is. I like my phone. As far as it goes, I can call people, you know, talk to people, catch up with people, organize things. It's got a calendar. It's got a Bible on it. I can read my Bible on it. It's actually got like 10,000 books on it. Um, and I can read on it. It's useful to me. It doesn't, well, it ought not to use me, but it's useful to me. I like food. Uh, yeah, too much, sometimes. But hopefully it's not God. Like Philippians, Paul talks about their God is their belly. That could be true of us, hey. I like microwaves. You know, not because I have a particular affection for microwaves, but it's just they're so useful. You know, I mean, they just heat things up. I don't know how they used to do it. You know, it's like, I do remember faintly being a kid and there wasn't one and then there was one and, you know, I mean, it's just amazing. What does it do? It means I can do other things than heat up food however else you'd do it. Put it in the sun or whatever. <laughs> I'm just, you know, anyway. I so, say, I like having a car. I don't like worship my car. <laughs> if you see my car, you know, it's, it's not an idol for me. But, but it's very helpful. Like, it's helpful. it gets me to work, right? It, it means I can visit people. It means I can take people different places. We can deliver meals. We can, like, the car's a great thing. So material things are great. I can enjoy them. I love sunsets. I love mountains. I love all of these things. And because I don't worship them, but actually lots of these things become springboards to worship of God, then actually we get to enjoy them more than anyone else in the world does because we're that extra element of springboarding off the thing to the Lord. In the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a unicorn named Jewel. It finally reaches Aslan's country. Aslan's country is like the picture of heaven. And he exclaims this, he says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. We're just seeing reflections of the handiwork of the Creator all around us in the way that was made in that, in that couch or that, you know, that thing. And, and we're just like amazed at the genius behind that technology. But it's all like the handiwork of God, you know. So we enjoy things, but we don't need things, right? Hebrews 10.34 you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, Be on your guard against all covetousness, 
for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Mark 8.36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's a rhetorical question. Nothing. So forget about like, I want to own a house. That will get, you know, forget about owning a house or having a career or getting kind of famous or getting, you know, building up my savings and that kind of thing. You could have the whole world, but it is (laughs) the incalculable worth of a soul. The whole world is not even close if you have forfeited your soul. So that's the first thing. You can enjoy things, but not worship things. Second, in light of eternity, the New Testament teaches we should be marked by radical generosity. Right? And this is the overflow of the work of the gospel in our lives. Right? Randy Alcorn says that, um, he used the analogy of lightning and thunder. Um, he says, like, God's grace and his generosity is the lightning. Our generosity towards others is the thunder. Right? That comes first, but it is always followed by this, isn't it? So when Paul encourages the Corinthian church to be generous, Paul talks about the lightning. He talks about God's generosity to them. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. See, the whole story of the Bible, if you you can look at it this way, is a story of a generous God. Just so much generosity, just overflowing and outpouring of generosity. Generous in His creation, generous in His promises, generous in the sending of His Son, generous in justifying the ungodly, generous in His forgiveness, generous in His grace and generous in His mercy, generous in adopting us into His family as His sons and His precious daughters, generous in giving us His Word, generous in giving us the Holy Spirit, generous in the church, generous in the hope of eternal life forever. He is a constantly overflowing, generous God. That's the lightning. The thunder is our overflow from that to others, just pouring out, showing the invisible generosity of God that is there, but putting visibility on it by showing people what God is like. When we overflow with generosity in the, in the way that God does, Paul uses the, this stunning example of the Macedonian church. 2 Corinthians 8, He says, in a severe test of affliction and their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This sounds like the Old Testament, doesn't it? So you put them together, it's like, what? Severe affliction, extreme poverty. What did that equal? Just abundance of joy and generosity of the kind where they said, please let us give more, begging them honestly, begging begging earnestly, may we give more, may we meet more needs. Mark 12, Jesus pays careful attention to people's generosity. He watches. He watches everyone's giving one day. Verse 41, it says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. He watches. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. 
But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on, Jesus says. If you were her like, finance advisor, you'd be like, no, 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 what are you doing? Jesus watches and he sees. And notice what he sees. He doesn't just see the amounts you give. He sees the generosity you're showing and they're not the same thing. He says there were rich people and they gave large sums of money and they were not generous. Why? It was out of abundance. There was no sacrifice. They didn't feel it. Did not even notice it was gone. But this woman gave almost nothing and she is extremely generous. Um, so we may not be required today to give a tithe. I don't think we are. But it would be a crazy suggestion to think the new covenant people on this side of the cross and resurrection would give less, isn't it? Doesn't that make like no sense at all? So probably a tithe is a good place to start. Probably not a bad, not a good place to end though. What are you meant to do when you get like a raise, you know, or extra money comes in? What are you meant to do with that? And um, Randy Alcorn points this out. He says like, like the, 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 our worldly sense is like, oh, you know, what, what would your heart do if you like found out, man, there's like, whatever, 10 grand waiting for you in the bank. It's just going to be what would you, you, you've already spent it, haven't you? <laughs> you know, it's like, I already, I know exactly where that's going. Because generally we think, oh, more money means I can raise my standard of living. But Randy Alcorn goes, and I think it's biblical, no, you've been given more money to raise your standard of giving. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 11, you will be enriched in every way, Why? to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Why are you enriched? We just got told to be generous in every way. That money is not yours, but it's designed to be passed on. Can you imagine giving someone, um, you know, maybe you, you know a friend, and you've got to get, get, get this gift voucher, like a, a pretty decent gift voucher to that person over there. You say, hey, could you pass that on to them? Could you pass that on to them for me? If you found out later on they were like spending it and like enjoying it, you'd be like, dude, what's going on? They'd be like, well, if you didn't want me to spend it, you shouldn't have given it to me. No, I gave it to you to give to them. That's not yours. That's mine. And I wanted it to get to them. How much of our money God gave to us to give to them and it never got to them. But we kept it. Ephesians 4.28, this is an amazing verse. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that, what? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's like the thief should stop stealing and start working. You know, it's like, I mean, that's a good thing because, you know, a thief not thieving, they may have stopped thieving, but they may just be between jobs, Right? They may just be planning the next one. Better that they actually get a job. But then why should they get a job? 
You go, what's the so that? What would you assume the so that? It's so they don't go to jail, or, you know, so that they can provide for themselves, so that they can, etc. And Paul goes, no, the thief should stop stealing and get a job so that they can what? Have something to share with anyone in need. The early church did this, Acts 2 verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need, Acts 4.34. There was not a needy person among them. So that was the second one, radical generosity. Third point, last one. In light of eternity, the New Testament says, store up treasures in heaven. Again, Randy Alcorn writes, financial planners try to convince people to look ahead instead of focusing on today or this month. Think 30 years from now, they say, and they'll share ways to do that by planning, budgeting, saving, contributing to an IRA, investing in this mutual fund or that real estate partnership. But the truth is, thinking 30 years ahead is only slightly less short-sighted than thinking 30 days ahead. Christ, the ultimate investment counsellor, says, don't ask, don't ask your investment, how your investment will be paying off in just 30 years. Ask how it will be paying off in 30 million years. Matthew 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Are you, brothers and sisters, are you storing up treasures in heaven? Are you storing up treasures on earth? That would look like keeping, hoarding, holding on to, accumulating. Storing up treasures in heaven would look like the opposite. Giving. Getting rid of. Just giving it away. Investing in kingdom things. Um, there's the old story, the, the, the guy who asked the accountant of John D. Rockefeller, you know, one of the richest people to have ever lived after he died, and the person asked his accountant, um, how much money did John D. leave? You know his reply? All of it. So you can't take anything with you. Nothing. But then what Jesus is saying is that actually you can invest in things that go beyond now, though. You can invest in treasures in heaven. You don't take it with you. But you can store up treasures in heaven by the way you use your money and possessions now. Um, another illustration, I um, got off someone, is, I'm using it my own way. Um, but it's not mine, just so you know. So if it's good, that's why. That's why it's good. <laughs> um, so just say that Bitcoin really takes off. I'm sure it's taken off. I don't know anything about Bitcoin. But it's really, it goes gangbusters. And everyone, everyone kind of government decides, you know what? We're just going to go Bitcoin from now on. Get rid of money, kind of that old thing, and we're going to go Bitcoin. And by the end of this year, we are all only going to use the currency of Bitcoin. But the problem is, like, for you, you might go, I've got, like, just say, you've got, I've got heaps of money, and none of that's going to be useful next year? What will you do with that money? Well, the wise person won't take too long to go, I should buy Bitcoin. I should, like, invest in Bitcoin, Right? And I should keep, like, some of it so that I can get through the rest of this year. But I just need to get through the rest of this year. But mainly, I want to have store-up treasures past this year, right? Because that's when it's useful. Do you see? 
Why on earth would we hold on to things that we cannot take with us, but we could put into things that last for eternity? The currency of heaven, if you like. Martin Luther once said, there are three conversions necessary in the Christian life. The conversion of the heart, the mind, and the wallet. So go back to the beginning. Where is your heart? Because there where your treasure is. What does your giving and spending reveal about your spiritual condition? Are you wasting the master's money? I was thinking about those who maybe you're not a Christian here this morning, and you're like, oh, here we go. I just walked in, and there's a church talking about money. It's like, you're going to have to take my word for it. This is not normal. (laughs) But Jesus talks about it a fair bit. Um, And there's no special offering happening, just so you know. We're not like, let's pass that plate. Um, That's not about to happen. But I would ask all of us, but especially if you're not a Christian, have you put your hope in riches? The offer of the gospel is, is not a way to get rich, but it is an offer of how to get reconciled with God, which is infinitely better than wealth. And it secures you both now and forever. And I just want to say to us, we will all stand before Him one day. Believe it or not, we will all stand with him before Him one day and give an account. And one of the things that God could look at is how we spent what does it say? Does it indict us? I, I, final illustration. Um, just this week, I saw this, uh, like a little news thing in America. It's it it so funny. Um, <clears throat> so American football's just started up again. There's NFL fans. But American football just started up again. The New York Jets have this superstar new quarterback. He's the guy that throws the ball, if you don't know. And he's pretty important to a team. And and his name's Aaron Rodgers, like a superstar, one of the greatest of all time. And they brought him into the team, and everyone's like, you know, for New York, very excited. There was this bar that obviously is not big fans of the New York Jets and wanted them to lose. And so they said in the bar, if New York Jets win, everyone's drinks are free. But if they lose, you've got to pay for your drinks, okay? It's a pretty good deal, maybe. So it depends what happens. And I don't know if you know what happened, but Aaron Rodgers, just like one minute into the game, snapped his Achilles, he's out for the game. What do you think everyone in that bar did? They started drinking, right? Because it's all free. There's no way they're going to win. They're playing against a good team, Buffalo Bills. Now, so they drink up. The, the, news, the reason it made it to the news is they, they won. The New York Jets won. And then they showed like a video of people's faces when it happened. Like, we're going to have to pay. <laughs> and and it's, it's, it just struck me as this like illustration of living like there will never be, and I'll never be held to account for this. I'll never actually have to stand before someone and give an account. I'm not accountable to anyone. That's how so many of us live and spend, isn't it? That's not the reality. But by the grace of God, there is forgiveness there's transformation that Jesus died for our sins and rose again to give us new life and new treasures and new desires and a a whole new world that cares about eternal things. And I pray that that would mark us as a church. Let me pray. Father, I just pray that this survey now of your word would land in our hearts in a place that 
if we're honest, often we want to protect from your word. I want your word to sink too deep. Oh, but give us the freedom, I pray, and the joy of generosity, of just overflowing with meeting needs and investing in eternal things, we pray. And I pray that we would be generous people, sacrificial people, for the sake of your kingdom and glorious eternal things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.